Sylvester McNutt, the third, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg. We're going to jam, have a podcast chat, have an open-hearted conversation. My first question for you, Sai, what does thriving mean to you when you think about a life that is lived in thriving versus surviving? Like, what's the difference? How do you feel it? How can you tell? It has to be an energetic difference. It's not, it's not something that's so black and white, like two plus two is four. Like, it's not that. It's more of an energetic feeling. Like, think about that young kid that gets to go uh, to a theme park for the first time and they get to get on rides and roller coasters. And they're not the kid that's terrified of it. They're the kid that's like, wow, this is amazing. This is like the greatest thing ever. You know, like, think about the emotion that just exudes and comes out of that kid. You know, that moment is you're thriving. You know, your parents drive you down there. You guys got snacks. Maybe you have lunch there. And, you know, you've been waiting probably all school year for this summer trip to get on this one ride. Yes, I'm telling a story from my childhood. <laughs> yes. You know, you, you're you waiting. Uh, for me, it was Six Flags Great America up in uh, Gurney, Illinois. And it's like, you know, all my friends used to say, oh, yeah, we went to Six Flags. We, we went there three times this summer. It was so great. And I just used to be like, so envious. I'm like, man, I can't wait to go to Six Flags. Then my people finally took me to Six Flags. In that moment, it was just thriving, just joy, uh, happiness, uh, fulfillment. Uh, it felt like a dream fulfilled. You know, it felt like you were in the right place at the right time. Everything was just in total alignment. So when I think of thriving, I think of something that encompasses a multitude of emotions. I think of something that a, a, a pivotal point in a person's life or story where there's multiple possibilities, multiple possibilities where uh, there's really what feels like is no limit. It really feels like endless possibilities. That's what I think of when I think of thriving. And then, you know, you mentioned the word surviving. Well, I've been on the other end of that as well, where, you know, I used to have food stamps, um, uh, you know, food stamps is where the government subsidizes and gives you money so you can literally go to the grocery store and, and get food. You know, I used to be on food stamps and um, like that was just pure surviving. I remember in college, I always, you people on the podcast can't see it, but I always tap this arm right here because I have a little hole in my arm and uh, I used to donate plasma for money. And so the way that was worked, the way that was set up is if you went once a week, you would get 20 bucks. But if you went a second time in the same week, you would get 60. So you had the opportunity to make 80 bucks a week for donating your plasma. Now, I know people are like, oh, well, that's so noble of him. That's such a good thing. He's such a good guy. Well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't a morality thing. It was because I needed to survive. Now, they ended up using the plasma to, to help people um, you know, who needed it. That wasn't my angle. My angle was I have no food. I can't pay my rent. I have nothing. I need to get some money. And I was, I was never the type of person that wanted to do stuff illegal, you know, like selling drugs. I was never into that type of thing. So, you know, when I'm in college, I'm, I'm donating my plasma for 80 bucks a week, you know? And then when I would get my 80 bucks, I was thinking to myself like, damn, how can I take this 80 and make it 800? So I would go to seminars. I remember uh, I was dating this girl at the time in college. I had no money. And there was this real estate seminar coming in town. This is what happens when you're in a state of survival. And I told her, I said, hey, I got to go to this real estate seminar. I'll become a real estate tycoon. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll make us a billionaire. You know, you know, you just have these dreams. I'm like, look, we got to get out of this college town. We're broke. We have no money, you know. 
And she's like, okay, I have no car. So I was like, hey, can you drive me? She's like, yeah, I could drive you. So then we get there and I was like, hey, it looks like it's 125 bucks to sign up. You know, I only have 80 bucks from my, from my thing. No, it was 225 and I only had 80. So I was like, can you give me the, the money so we could sign up? And she was like, okay, yeah, I'll give it to you. Like never, she never didn't believe in me, even though she was just working part-time and she was a full-time college student as well. She was also in a state of survival and she was like, man, we got to get out of here. We have to get out of this place. So obviously I didn't become the real estate tycoon. Uh, nothing actually happened from that event. I just paid them their money and you know that was the end of it. But I was in that mindset of survival and I was really trying to figure out how can I thrive? Like, how can I get out of this? And when I was in, I remember those emotions, the emotions of I will walk five miles to this place to donate plasma. I remember driving from DeKalb, Illinois to Aurora, Illinois, where that um, where that real estate thing was at. And it was, uh, it's about 30 miles, not having a car. I remember that feeling of asking someone, hey, can you take me here? Like, hey, pretty much what I was saying is, hey, can you believe in me? Can you believe that I'm I'm worth more than this moment? And she was like, yeah. Then we get there and I'm like, damn, you know, I need money. I need financial support. Can you help? She says, yeah, absolutely. You know, that girl is still one of my best friends to this day. Like still one of my soulmates, still someone I love and care for. Simply because she believed in my ability to thrive when I was in survival mode. You know, I can never, I can never let that space go because she cares so much. So the emotions that I remember when I was in survival is, um, a lot of humbleness, like very humbleness. You can't be cocky when you're in survival. You have to be very humble. You have to be very appreciative. Um, I was a afraid a lot. I was afraid every day. I woke up every day with fear. Uh, I never was a person that dealt with a lot of anxiety. I I've only dealt with normal anxiety. I've never dealt with it anything, anything more than normal anxiety. And I'm thankful for that. But I remember being very afraid. I lived, I lived a very fearful, fearful life. I would say another emotion is frustration. I was frustrated actually with my parents, my family. I felt like they should have put us in a better situation. I felt like I shouldn't have been in a situation to where I was surviving. So with that came a lot of resentment, came a lot of anger, it came a lot of hostility towards my parents. It came, it, there was a lot of distrust with them because I felt like they couldn't support, you know, their kids. Um, so there was a lot of like emotional. The, the emotional landscape when I was in survival mode was just, you know, much lower vibration. It's hard to create from that lower vibration. But at the same time, it was necessary. And I'm one of the people that I do have, that, that is one of my stories. It's, I went from this place of survival to now what feels like a place of thrivival. You see how I did that? Thrivival? <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a word, but we're the running. It. it sounds good. <laughs> Sly in the thrivival. It sounds like a <laughs> the band. The thrivival, right? <laughs> When um, when you said you had a lot of fear in that survival state, like what were you most scared of? Everything. The fear of, of feeling like a failure, the fear of shame, because I had a lot of shame, you know? It was like, I'm this popular high school football player. I become a college football player. I'm one of the first people in my, my, my family to go away to college. You know, I had a fear of letting people down. I had a fear of not being good enough. I had a fear of you know, yeah, I'm playing football. I'm studying communication and psychology, but so what? I literally am giving plasma because I can't afford to eat. You know, I had a fear of dying. I had a fear of being killed. I had a fear of being robbed. You know, I just had a fear. I didn't have a car. I was walking to this place four or five miles to get there. I just had a fear of getting hit by a car. I was, you know, I just, 
I just had a fear of everything. I think the fears that people have, you know, am I doing the right thing? Am I wasting my time? Am I ever going to get out of this situation? When I when I got out of college, you know, then I was on food stamps for about six months. Again, that humbles you. It humbles you when the government is giving you money because you can't, you don't, you're not in a position to get enough money for yourself to take care of yourself. And I had no financial support from the time I, so I got kicked out of the house at 17. So from the time I was 17, I literally had to figure it all out. No support, no moral support, no financial support, no support to talk about relationships or, you know, ideas. Literally, it was just go figure it out. So I was, t- I was terrified from 17 to about 31. I was terrified of everything. Hmm. I was saying to somebody this morning on a podcast that like back in my day, we didn't have the internet in my pocket and I didn't, I didn't know what life coaching was or you couldn't just Google like I'm desperate help, right? It, it seemed like a much more isolated experience back then. Um, I resonate with that for sure. Yeah, you said something else that I wanted to ask you about. I'm actually surprised because I've known you for a couple of years now and I haven't heard that story about the food stamps or the plasma. Like when you were tapping your arm there a moment ago, I was like, oh, damn, I haven't, I didn't know that about you. So real quick, that was a shame wound. So because it was a shame wound and I never made peace with it, I never wanted to share it. I never wanted to talk about it because I was ashamed of it. I was ashamed of that part of my story. But I healed my shame uh, last year. I I healed all my shame wounds. That's another part of thriving. You know, when you heal your shame, you can tell the story comfortably. And it's, you're not bringing, I'm not, when I'm telling the story, I'm not bringing up the emotions that I went through then because I'm over the wound. I've made peace with the wound. I've healed the wound. But if you're still in the wound, you're going to obviously tell the story and it's going to be whatever, all that emotion is going to come back to you. So that's why I'm comfortable sharing it now because I'll, I'll tell you another one. I used to pee in the bed. You know, but it wasn't like I peed in the bed, like all kids pee in the bed. It was I peed in the bed till I was 14. So then ask me why, though. Sly, why did you pee the bed? (laughs) So I was abused. I was abused every day in my household. So I was psychologically abused by my mother and physically abused by my father. So that was one of the consequences is my body couldn't self-regulate. It couldn't regulate all my functions. So I would pee in the bed. And I even remember my dad saying when I was 14 and I went to high school my freshman year, he goes, he's like, you know, no girl is going to like a guy who pees in the bed. And I was like, well, that's not very supportive. I remember him saying that and I wanted to, I just wanted to punch him. That was the first time I remember wanting to attack my father when he said that. It's like, wow, like you're the reason this is, I, I didn't have the language or understanding, but I felt like at that time that I felt like it wasn't normal and I felt like it was their fault. So part of thriving also is looking back on these stories that I'm telling you and finding compassion, compassion for my dad, compassion for my mother, compassion for a 14-year-old me, 18-year-old me, college me, and honestly, forgiving and just mm. forgiving them. That's another part of thriving. I love this line by uh, Buddy Wakefield talks about that forgiveness is the release of all hope for a better past that you've like you've let go of the idea that the past could be any different than it was right Mm, Um, i'm curious to follow up on on that why why did you get kicked out of the house at 17 like what was going on was it a mutual decision or was it a 
get the heck out of here, Sly. Uh, I never actually thought about why. I mean, I know the story of what happened and what triggered the moment, but the actual why behind it, I don't know. Um, I wasn't listening to what I was being told. I was being told that I had to wash dishes. I hate washing dishes. And the dishes that I had to wash, I didn't even eat any of the food. I wasn't offered any of the food. It was uh, it was my dad and his um, his new ex girlfriend at the time, or not ex girlfriend, his new girlfriend at the time. Excuse me. And um, I just told him no. I said no. I'm actually not going to wash these dishes because one, I didn't eat any of this food that you guys got, and two, these are not my dishes, so I shouldn't have to clean up after you. You're adults. I shouldn't have to clean up after you. My dad didn't like that. He thought that I was, uh, you know, you know how parents in movies do the whole, well, I'm paying rent and I brought you into this. And I, you know, he did one of those ego trips and he was just like, well, if you don't do this, you need to get the F out very aggressively. And uh, he grabbed the frying pan. He grabbed his frying pan and tried to hit me, tried to slap me with this cast iron frying pan. And I said, enough is enough. Like you've abused me for almost, it feels like 10, the last 10 years of my life. And I was ready to die. I was ready to die in that apartment. So I, when he swung at me, I said, let's go then. Let's go. I was 17 now. I've been lifting weights for like three or four years. Yeah, playing I was football, say, getting strong. Yeah. You would have been a big dude by then. Yeah, at that time I was I was ready. I was like, okay. I was like, you know, you got I got 10 years of pain and you just whooping my ass and four years of training. Even though I, I probably wouldn't have been able to take them. In my mind, I would have been able to take them. You know, because my dad, my dad was a black belt in karate. He did boxing. He was a, he was in U.S. Army. So he was very trained in all all things. But I was ready at that time. I was ready. So, really, what it was was there was, um, you know, I don't want to find the silver lining because I know some people go through this, and sometimes you can't find the silver lining. But I think it was just time for. I think he saw that moment as, okay, this person potentially may be more powerful than me. And so he needs to take his power to his own house. I really think that's what it was. I think my father wanted to be the most powerful being in the house. Yeah, it sounds like a test of sorts. And like whether or not you passed or failed the test didn't matter so much as you showed up to take the test, right? And it was like, okay. You, just by showing up, you kind of passed the test and like things had to shift, right? And I feel like so many of us confront that. If there's the fear about showing up. There's the fear about saying the thing and what it will mean. There's the fear about leaving the relationship, starting the relationship, quitting the job, starting the business. And then just the process of committing and showing up to make that change is what actually starts everything being different. But I imagine for you at that time, it felt like things were sort of falling apart or desperate. You're a 17-year-old kid, just got kicked out of the house. You've been abused for a while. It's not like- it's I was not happy. You are happy. I was happy. Yeah, when that happened, it, was, it, it felt like freedom. What did you, you don't do? Really think what, where did you go? So, all right. So what I did was I went back in my room and obviously I was like a really good high school football player. Uh, I wasn't a track star, but I did okay. And so I went in the room and I really had a grief ritual. Really, I looked at my newspaper clippings, all the awards I had. I looked at all my pens, my varsity letters. I just looked at everything I had done in high school. And I'm just looking at it and just 
just like really appreciating the journey because I wasn't supposed to be there. I was not supposed to be there. I was not supposed to be like this decorated athlete, you know, and I'm just looking at it. And, uh, you know, I just like really took a deep breath and just really appreciate it. I'm actually, I can visualize it right now. That's, I can see it right now. And, uh, you know, it was just really cool to just collect, you know, newspaper clippings. Like I'll never forget the first time I saw my name in a newspaper and a picture of me stiff arming this kid. We were playing Barrington and Barrington was like, Barrington, uh, Illinois is like the rich is one of the richest places in the, in the country. Like literally mm. just mansions, mansions upon mansions. So, uh, we lost the game, but you know, I, I played good and I felt good about that. And so I'm looking at the picture. I was like, wow, that's cool. You know, Sylvester McNutt the third did this. And I just was like appreciative of the journey. And, uh, so I took two black garbage bags. Uh, I think they were like 13 gallon garbage bags and I put one inside of the other, Whatever clothes I could fit in there, put them in there. Uh, I took my PlayStation, put my PlayStation in there. And then I had my very first cell phone from uh, Sprint. Because, uh, you know, when you when you start with cell phone service and you don't have credit, Sprint's the only people that are going to take you. And uh, I don't even know if they're a company still anymore. I think they merged with T-Mobile, actually. So I had a Sprint phone. That was my very first phone. It was a, a, it was a Sanyo flip phone. Sanyo, S-A-N-Y-O. I don't even think that's a brand anymore. And damn, I feel old now telling this story. <laughs> and uh, so I take my garbage bag. I got my PlayStation in there. I think it was a PlayStation 2 at the time or maybe a PlayStation 1. I can't remember. And um, so I walked to my high school. That's literally what I did because, you know, that was that was home, you know, playing sports there, making friendships there, being there for four years. That was home. So I went to my high school. It was the afternoon. I got to put this in a book. This is a great story. And uh, I go to the very front of the high school, right by where we used to walk out for, for, for our football games, where we used to walk out and march to our stadium, because that was the most familiar place to me. So I'm just sitting there in this spot, and I, I'm just like getting the chills actually telling the story. And I just remember, uh, actually, when this happened, this was I was 18 years old. I was one year after college. So I graduated high school, did my one year of college, went back home for the summer. This is when this occurred. I was 18. And uh, so I'm a freshman in college and I'm just sitting there the summer and I'm just like, man, this is, this is pretty fucked up. Like the situation, I remember thinking to myself, but I felt so free. I felt so happy to be nothing to be no one, to be nobody knew what I was going through, to be not in that house anymore. I was not in that environment. I didn't have to live under those rules. And um, I just sat there probably for a good hour, literally at least an hour, and uh, just thought about everything that that city did for me. I was there for about five years because I did eighth grade in that same city, Palatine, Illinois. So there was this girl I was seeing in college freshman year, so I called her. And I was like, hey, you're not going to believe what just happened. Told her the story. And she was like, you know, keep in mind, we're like 18 and 19 at the time. So we don't have houses and apartments. She was like, well, you know, I'll check with my dad to see if, you know, you could stay here the night so you don't have to, you know, sleep outside. I was like, okay, cool. So she told her dad what was going on. And her dad was like, yeah, go pick him up. Let him stay here. So I think I stayed there with them for maybe two or three days. You know, and then by the third day, dad was like, all right, you got to get out of here. <laughs> you got to get out of here. So, but it was really good because that gave me time to touch base with like my mom, you know, some of my high school teammates, some of my college teammates, just, it kind of gave me time to decompress from the situation. So what ended up happening was 
when I was a senior, there was a junior named Mike Kruger. He was on the football team with me. And, you know, I, I had a great relationship with all my teammates. Like, I was a really good teammate. And he got wind of what was going on. And his parents were like, oh, yeah, we love Sly. He can just stay with us for the rest of the summer until, you know, I go back to college. Mm. So sure enough, they came and picked me up. And for June, July, and August, I was I was their fourth kid. They had two girls and one boy who was my teammate. And they looked out for me, man. They 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 had got me breakfast. They went to church every Sunday. I wasn't a church person, but I went to church with them. You know, I prayed with them. I just assimilated mm-hmm. to the family. You know, so it was cool. They never asked me for anything ever. They never said you need to pay rent. You need to do this. They just said, hey, you know, we have abundance. As a matter of fact, they were thriving. That family was thriving. And what they did was they just brought me in and -hmm. they just showed me a new way. They just showed me a new image. They showed me new energy. They showed me love. And um, it was perfect, man, because then I started my sophomore year and everything, everything started to change from there. Mm. That's such a beautiful story like are you still in touch with him at all you know we've been in and out of touch i've, I've wanted to like do so much for them and I, I owe yeah. them a big steak dinner and birthday cake all the things you know but it's, it's been kind of hard getting in touch with them we, t- we touched base a little bit a few years ago but yeah. um i just picture you, know, you like giving them give them one of your books like hey look at like look who i am i've i've written a bunch of books and like you really changed my life you know, but this is the thing about when you're thriving, you don't need it back. You don't want it back. I don't mm. even think they would accept it. You know, they had so much to give. They were mm. just like, hey, you know, let's help this guy out. We don't need anything in return. Yeah. It's that, that idea of you are what you love, not what loves you. Right. And so it's, they, they just had enough. It's like, that's just how it is. That's our worldview. Like, we don't, this is a gift, right? It's, this is not a, an exchange. It's just a gift. I like that. This is a gift, not an exchange. So I want to flip the turn, the turn these tables here, like a DJ. Yeah, you know, because you're 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 DJ and you're playing some pretty good music right now, asking some good questions, you know. And um, <laughs> let's let's turn the, let's turn the party around here. All right. You know, for you, what is what is it? What does it mean to thrive? You know, what does that feel like? What is it? What does it look like? What's, emotionally, what does it sound like? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because when you were answering your question, I started kind of daydreaming and, and I took a, a similar but different approach to that. And so it sounded like what you were saying was when you're thriving, it's an embodied sensation. It's like a feeling. It's a, it's a knowing. Like it, it, it maybe manifests as peace or joy or ease or excitement right? But it's like, a, like, you just know, you just, you're there, you're present, you feel it, right? Whereas w- what I started thinking about was when I am in pain, like, I don't have to sit, th- like, if I stub my toe on the street, I don't sit there and say, am I in pain right now? Or does my toe hurt right now? It's like, no, fuck no. I, like, I just know that I'm in pain. Like, I know that I'm suffering, right? It's, it's not like, I'm not waiting for somebody to walk by and be like, hey man, you look like you're in pain. Are you in pain? It's like, no, it's just, it's, I just know, right? In the same way, when I'm heartbroken, when I'm feeling shame, when I'm feeling lonely or 
like when I want to give up or when I'm feeling judgmental and guilty, all of these sensations, like I, I just know, like I, I know like something is happening inside of my body and I might not have the exact specific language for it, but I speak that language fluently, let's say. And so for me, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Like I find when I'm thriving, I experience more serendipitous moments. Like I meet people or opportunities find me or so, so like, for example, yesterday, uh, we're like having a heat wave where I live right now. And it's, it's very, it's very warm, abnormally warm. And we had a heat wave a couple weeks ago that was, uh, like a record heat wave. It was so, so hot to the point where like, I went to the store to buy a fan and the whole aisle looked like the start of the pandemic, the toilet paper aisle where there's just nothing. And I'm like, wait, where's all the fan? There's literally a row in the middle of a store that's just empty. And I asked the staff, they're like, oh, no, they're gone. Like all the fans are gone. And so that happened a couple weeks ago. And so there's another heat wave coming. And I was like, oh, man, I got to my, my girlfriend and I were talking about fans. We go for a walk yesterday. We come back. We walk in our building. And like right there in the lobby where you like go to get on the elevator or whatever, there's literally, you can maybe see it behind me. There's a there's a fan, a stand-up fan sitting there and has a sign on it and it says free. And we like looked at each other and I was like, do we need, let's take it upstairs and see if it works. It works fine. It's perfect. There's a remote control. It's like exactly the freaking fan that I would have needed for the last heat wave. But now it's like, it just is here. And so for me, when we were, I was carrying it up upstairs, like I just, you know, gone on a hunting mission and come back with a gazelle or whatever. I'm like, look, look at us. And I just felt in my body, like I'm thriving right now. Like free, amazing things are just happening to me. I don't have to force them. I don't have to uh, work and grind and hustle. I just have to get out of my own way and allow things to be good. Uh, and so for me, it's that. It's like more and more the process or the practice is to like I've, I've heard it described as um, get, get still and talk to God, right? Like find the silence within and just like listen. Like how am, how am I really doing? You know, how is my life really flowing? Like am I excited about this project? Do I want to do this? Do I not? Like what conversations am I avoiding? Like, what do I need to say? All of these kinds of things. And so I find for me, at least a, a prerequisite to thriving perhaps is to conduct those regular check-ins with commitment and devotion and just get still and talk to God and, and just listen. And that helps me to orient my internal space on that survive to thrive spectrum, so to speak, because I've found that okay. I'm okay. Well, just one more thing. And then, and then I'll, I'll throw it to you. Like I found that I'm really good at, at tricking myself where I'm like, I'm good. Everything's fine. Like I'm kicking that. Yeah, I'm good. Like, yeah. and then I'm busy. I'm distracted. I'm procrastinating. I'm avoiding things are not good, but I don't create the space to allow myself to actually sit there and admit it and face it. I'm curious. You mentioned the, the thread that a lot of people are in respectfully. Uh, 
the grind, the hustle, the get up, the work, the get the bag, get some money. You know, this is such a thread that mm. so many people are on and chasing. And I mean, we're experiencing, at least where I live, uh, like a serious inflation where everything seems to be more expensive. The cost of living, gas, food, just everything, tuition. I mean, everything seems to be more expensive. And uh, I mean, the consequence of that is what? You need more money or you need to work more. So I'm curious where you see thriving and surviving, you know, fitting into that whole framework of like, yeah, we do need to work. We do need to to get money and pay bills and do our experiences and whatever else. I'm just, I'm just curious how you, how you approach the whole angle of work and your mindset with work and, and what it is for you. It's a good, it's a good question. So just yesterday I had a conversation with my coach. Like I have a, a life coach that I talk to once a month that like helps me with things. And a lot of that conversation conversation centered around the, the like internal discussion that I have with myself between like being grat- being grateful, being present, loving my life, being okay with what is, and ambition, uh, desire, uh, hustling, you know, like wanting more, right? So like, so the inner tension or turmoil between I'm good, I'm happy, I'm blessed, I'm grateful, but also trying to navigate the desire to change those things. And so for me, I think one of the foundational ideas of, of that question requires safety. So it's, it's very difficult to feel unsafe and also feel like you're thriving, right? I, I would almost suggest that those two things are in- incompatible. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't given that tremendous thought, but off the top of my head, I feel like, like surviving is the, is the like minimum sort of requirement. Like if you are unsafe, if you, if you don't have food, shelter, right, some money to, to get some water, like you're, you're having a difficult time, right? And so I think though that for many of us, like many of the clients I work with, like they're definitely surviving, like, but they're fine. Like they're safe. They have, they have a job, they have a house, they have some money in the bank. Like they, they're not going to starve. Uh, if, if everything fell apart, they have friends and family that they would, they could rely upon. Like they're okay, but in their brain and in their body, they feel like they're drowning. Right. And so I think part of the process requires us to navigate the experience that we're actually having versus the experience that we tell ourselves we're having. So it's like, there's a difference between like hating your job and also, uh, between like having a job and not having a job. Like you can hate your job and feel like your, your world is falling apart, but also like you have some income, like you're blessed, you're good. And so there's ways to shift those things. But I think the, the ground level uh, of safety is, is a requirement to be fulfilled first and foremost. What do you think about that? That makes sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Like I think sometimes people can get in this habit of having desires that can pull them out of presence and pull them out of like recognizing the situation that that you're in. Perfect example of this is I was talking to my my friend. I feel like I'm coaching him when I talk to him oftentimes. And um, 
you know, he he has a story that he tells himself where when this one thing happened to me, he got fired from a job. He's like, when this one, he, he points to, he points to that moment in his life as like everything from that moment has been downhill. Every, everything, relationships, weight gain, money, everything has been downhill from when he got fired from that job. But from the outside looking in, to me, that's not what I see. Now, I don't want to, you know, disrespect his interpretation of his own emotions. Mm. But to me, he got fired from a job. And within two months, he had another career. He's been able to move a couple times. He's lived on his own the whole time, has never missed a rent payment, not one time. Mm. He's had a new car the whole time that he wanted, that he could afford, that he was able to pay for, never had his car repossessed. He's always had money to eat. He's traveled a few times, not a whole lot. He hasn't traveled a whole lot, but he has been able to travel a little bit. Uh, I know specifically because he came out here to see me in 2016 and we went to Denver together in 2018 and we hung out there for a weekend, went to a football game, you know, had some tacos, like we had a great time. So I was telling him this. I'm like, you know, as soon as he started telling the story, I stopped him. I said, hey, I don't want to disrespect you, but shut the hell up. You know, and he's like, what, what, what? I was like, you're about to do that thing. You're about to tell this story, this really negative story about how you got fired and all, and your life hasn't been the same since then. Why are you telling yourself that story? And he's like, yeah, you know what? I'm not even, I'm not even going to do it. And I told him what I just told you. I'm like, dude, from the outside looking in, you got past that moment. You recover from that moment. Maybe emotionally, you still feel the shame of being fired, hmm. but if you actually look at your life, you're doing fine. Like you're doing, you're not even doing fine. You're thriving, you know? So I, I really like how you called that out. It's like, sometimes we just, we're not able to really look at our story and see that like we're doing a lot better than we, we believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. One way that I've thought this through or, or like when I work with people, I, I often start with simply like, what do you want? Right. And, and I do that because as you suggest, sometimes we actually are living our dream life, but we haven't, we haven't realized that because we haven't clarified or admitted it to ourselves. So it's like your dream life. It's like, I want to, I want a job that I love. I want a partner that I love. I want to be able to do this and that and that. It's like, okay, well you do four out of five of those things. Like so what's going on? Right, and so as your as your buddy um, knows, and as I know full well, also like sometimes we can cling to a story that is painful or tragic without recognizing that we get a tremendous amount of value from persisting with that interpretation. Right, so so yeah, his victim kind of story or his his sob story benefits him in some way. It gets him, for example, some compassion, some love, some connection, sense of belonging. Like, oh man, you that's so bad. Like here, let me let me talk to you. Let me show you love. Let me care about you. Right. And so in order to change from this surviving place to the thriving place, we have to take the courageous steps to release some of these stories that benefit us. While at the same time, stepping into new stories that feel unfamiliar and uncertain and scary, right? And so we, we have a lot to lose potentially 
or, or I mean, that's the poor way to say it, but going from surviving to thriving, I think requires us to also face loss and grief. And we, we lose some parts of ourselves in that process. And I don't think that that is necessarily talked about as much as it needs to be. It's like, you're going to grieve while you get better. Like while your life gets better, you're going to be forced to feel sadness and sorrow. Yeah. Pe- people don't recognize that, you know, when they're like, oh, I want to be a millionaire. I want this and I want this. And, you know, you're, you're mentioning all your dreams and aspirations. You're going to take some loss. You're going to get punched in the face. And obviously for anyone who's experienced like physical abuse, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as an analogy, you know, you're going to uh, lose friendships. You're going to, lo- you're going to have lose loved ones potentially. Yes. Like, You'll have family members. Yeah, you'll you'll have conflict because you'll have people saying, "Well, why are you doing all this?" Good. Oh, a perfect example is when you decide you want to start eating good and eating clean and eating healthy, and you're going to have people who are not on that train, and they're going to say, "Well, why are you doing that? You're better than me." Like, no, I'm not better than you. I just want to be the best me that I can be. That's all, you know. But you will deal with that when you say when you say, "Hey, I want to thrive." I want, you know, you said four out of five. I like four out of five. I, like, I, I, need, I need to thrive out of four, four out of five things in my life. You will cause conflict with people in your life, especially if they don't want to thrive or if they don't feel worthy of it or if they think you can't do it because they'll let you know. Anybody who thinks you can't do it, they'll always let you know. Mm-hmm. They'll always let you know. Their energy will let you know. They don't say the words. Their energy will let you know. And like what's really happening is that they don't think they can do it. So they project their own fears and limitations onto you. And they, they tell you, no, you can't do that because I don't think I could do that. Right. Right. Yeah. Like another example would be drinking. I think in our culture is a really big one. So if you go to a bar or a restaurant or a party and you say, oh no, like I don't want to drink. It's, I, I remember these days, it's, it's like, what? it's like you're you're wearing a dress like bright red face paint or something it's like it's like you're an abomination like, what do you mean or like what's wrong with you or it, it's like a perceived as a threat of some kind rather than just simply i i don't want to have a drink in this moment like thank you though and so as you say like that challenges a lot of individual preconceptions a lot of uh, relationship dynamics and it It'll bring up a lot, which I think is one reason why it's really difficult to do this stuff on your own, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, you need community. You need community. You need support, which is why I have a coach, which is why therapy is so powerful, which is why groups of people doing it together is so powerful. You get accountability, love, compassion, understanding. You get to talk to somebody about it. Whereas my experience in doing it alone, uh, it felt very isolating. I felt lonely. I felt lost. Uh, right. I felt scared. Right. I, I, it's just a, it was a very dark time. Right. And so I think for me, that was sort of learning the hard way. And for me, learning the easy way is, is having people in my life that ideally have done it before me. Like, like, Hey, like when you quit drinking, what was it like? Or, Hey, I want to start this business. What is it like for you? Or at least to believe in me, as you said, like your, your college girlfriend she never didn't believe in me right it's like having people in your life that have your back that are that when you share a a wacky wild idea they're like yeah let's do it like and i want to move to 
Colombia and raise goats. Like, fuck yeah, I'm going to visit you. I can't wait to see those goats. It's like, let's go. Um, Those are rare and special things. And I think to cultivate any of those requires initially for you as an individual to admit to yourself what you truly want and then take some action towards it. Like show up to the test because you did with your dad. I think about the image of the person who doesn't want to drink and they continue to go to the bar with the same people that they've been getting drunk with for three years. Well, it might be impossible to change. But if you started to hang around the people who don't drink and those say those people still go to the bar, you probably will have the support you need. I think about the person who maybe you grew up in a family of meat eaters and you (laughs) want to become vegan. Well, if your dad's got a, porterhouse steak on the grill <laughs> and your mom's eating pork chops, you might not be able to go vegan in that. That support system might not be there. So it's very important that we recognize that for us to make the changes that we want, that we feel most in alignment with our soul, like you're talking about, we will have to leave some of these structures where certain behaviors, certain mindsets exist. And that's going to cause grief. That's going to cause pain. But it's so important how we do it. In the meat eater example, right? Let's just say, you know, you want to become vegan. It's very important that you understand and respect their choices, not to not to put them down or not to say, well, you guys are killing the planet or you're stupid or none of that, because then you'll you'll never get the support you want. Then it's very important to just say, I respect what you're doing. That's your life. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to put you down for me. I'm going to order my my vegan food or or whatever, you know, whatever your whatever your story is like with the drinking thing. I just went out. This past weekend, me and four guys, we were in L.A. And uh, I mean, they all got drunk as hell. <laughs> they were drunk. <laughs> and uh, so we went to this one club and my uh, one of the guys gets a table. And um, it's like $1,000, you know, to get this table, which was really a table, like this little table, two bottles of uh, tequila and a bottle of champagne, which is outrageous if you think about it. But I don't mind it because I'm like, you know what? I'd rather have my own designated space and where we can just kind of like, this is our space instead of just roaming around all night. So I actually don't mind getting the table. So, you know, it comes the moment. And when guys, when good looking guys buy tables, random women always show up somehow, right? So there's like 10 women like orbiting our table. One of the girls comes up to me. She's like, I've been watching you for 20 minutes and you're drinking a bottle of water. Like, let's do a shot. Why don't you just take some shots or something? And I was like, why are you watching me? <laughs> that, was the first, that was the first thing I said to her. I was like, why are you watching me? <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, no, I won't be drinking at all. I'm just drinking water. And she goes, that's so boring. I said, what's boring? Me or me, the fact that I'm drinking water. And she goes, the fact that you're drinking water. I said, well, if you want to be entertained, sit down and talk to me. She's like, okay, I'll talk to you, but we need to do a shot. I said, why do I have to take a shot to talk to you? And she couldn't really come up with like anything out. Her angle was, it would make her happy if I took a shot. And I'm now that I'm, I think I'm 150, I think I'm 150 days sober from alcohol now. Mm. What I've recognized is that oftentimes we want people to validate our own choices and belief systems by doing and mirroring and mimicking the behaviors that we're choosing. And when they don't, it causes a disruption. And that's when a person has to go within, when you get in that moment of disruption. 
mm-hmm. have to go within. You have to figure out what's truest to me. Because if I would have take if I would have taken that shot with that girl, in that moment, I would have been self betraying myself. Mm-hmm. And I can't do that. I can't self betray. If I take a shot ever, it has to be because I genuinely want to, not because I need to appease her. And I hope whoever listening listening to that can recognize like that's one of the keys to thriving to recognize like I'm not going to self-betray. Mm. Yeah. And it's not as if you were judging or shaming her for her choice. It's like, yeah, not sit at down. All. Like you can have a shot. Go for it. I'm going to have my water and and let's connect. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I, I think though it, it's a tricky thing to maybe not tricky, but I guess the question is, how do you cultivate that inner self-awareness and that self-respect where you're okay disappointing people because of your choice and you staying on your path? I think it really goes back to the question you asked. What do you want? Hmm. Like, who do you want to be? I think, I think if, yeah, if you answer that question, what do I genuinely want? What's truest to my soul? What's truest to my body at at this moment? You'll find the answer and you just got to stick to it. Mm. Yes, it was the follow-up to that that I'll use that I think is a really powerful way to frame all of this stuff is is once you've identified what you want, so you want the sobriety, the house, the job, the, the peace of mind, the regulated nervous system, whatever. Like once you have that vision clear, then it's like, okay, who do you need to be so that that dream life is just a completely normal reality. Like, oh, you want to be an author? Okay, you got to be uh, disciplined, committed, brave, etc. And so you can start to identify the traits that are required for you to be the person that lives that dream life that you so desire. And mm. I think that's where like you, the rubber hits the yeah. road and people get stopped because it's like, oh, but that's hard. <laughs> like, yeah, now we're talking. <laughs> you is. just made me think about... Um, I don't remember what teacher it was, but there was a teacher who came into my life and their whole angle was look the part, look the part, look the part. Mm. And what they were alluding to is when you go into, uh, th- I remember this is when I had first started doing sales at Verizon. And when you go in, in there, you're about to spend a whole bunch of money. Who do you want to spend money with? You want to spend money with the person who quote unquote looks the part. Why? Because their energy is the part. You want the salesperson who's knowledgeable who's compassionate, who takes his or her time explaining the process to you. You know, you don't want the person that doesn't give a damn how they're looked, how they dress, how they're just, you know, slouching in the chair. Can I help you? Uh, no, you can't help me. I need I need somebody with more energy. You can't, you cannot help me. Who else is available? <laughs> Put right. me back in queue. I need, I need the salesperson who comes over and they're like, hey, how you doing? Welcome to whatever this place is called. My name is Bob and I'm here to serve you. Yeah, you know what, Bob? You got my attention. You got my attention. You got my time because you look yes. the part. Mm-hmm. So you'll have to uh, look the part. And I don't say look the part as if I'm saying fake it till you make it because I, I don't believe in fake it till you make no. it. I'm just saying look the part. Look the part, meaning create the energy from within. Create the mindset and trust the mindsets from within that will help you to go to where you get to go where you want to be. Yeah, 100%. One of my friends, Polly McGee, says, be it until you are it, which is show up as if you are that version of yourself and you just put the reps in and eventually you become that version of yourself. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to 
do any of these manipulative disguises. You don't have to put a mask on. It's just like, be it, be that version of yourself until you are comfortably embodied as that individual. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the practice. That. That's the, that's oh. like the, the path, I suppose. For, for me, at least, I, that's an ongoing process where the little voices come in sometimes, like the old stories, the old beliefs, the fears, the judgments, the like, the desire for comfort, the desire to not do this hard thing today, let's do it tomorrow, right? And so I think that internal dialogue is an ongoing thing to pay attention to and, and to navigate, let's say. Do you, do you feel that well, as well, or do you? I deal with all that. <laughs> I deal with I deal with all that. I deal with, um, you know, actually, the number one thing that prevents me from from thriving is imposter syndrome. Yeah. That's the number one thing that I have to consistently deal with is imposter syndrome because obviously I had twenty years of conditioning of you're not that smart, you're not good enough, you're too short, you're too tall, your butt's too big, your your nose is too <laughs> wide, all that, right? But then it's like, again, just like my friend, those, mm-hmm. those, those, that story isn't the story I tell myself. I don't even believe that story. I don't think any of that. Well, you know, I do have a wide nose, but I think it's a sexy nose too, you know? So it's like, <laughs> you know, so I deal with the imposter syndrome. I look at, like in my industry sometimes, I, and I'll just be honest, sometimes I'll look at other authors and they're like, this author sold 3.7 million copies of their book. And I'm like, well, shit, I have good books. Like, I have great books. How do I do that? <laughs> you know? And, and then it's like, it, when you feel it, you're like, okay, does this mean that that author is better than me? You know, or if I don't, you know, and it's really not true. What I've learned is as recently as the last like three months, what I've learned is we have to just get out of this like egocentric way of seeing things like, oh, well, my book sold this or my book is the best or my book is great. It's like, in this industry, you're really not here for you. Once you get to a certain point, it's not about you. Maybe your first book is completely about you because you want to prove to yourself you could be an author or you have this great idea. But if you're committed to the work, if you're committed to doing coaching, if you're committed to this industry we work in, it's none of this is about you. You're nothing but a vessel. And it's like, yeah, it's about you because you do need to learn. You do need to keep evolving. You do need to keep... Um, sharpening yourself to make yourself more of a stronger vessel mm-hmm. for the people you're serving. But none of this is about you. So when you get out of that like egocentric, this is about me, 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 then you start, that's when you become a visionary. You know, see, when you're egocentric, all you care about is your desires. How do I feel? How do I look? How, what's my sales like? What, what's my money? What's my notoriety? But when you become a visionary, you're not in just your desires. You're wondering about the world's desires. What does, what does this community need for me, for me to serve them? Like, how can I be a vessel to serve this space of people, whether that's friends, family, online community, you know, fitness community, local yoga community. So for, for me right now, I feel a transformation where I'm letting go of my like egocentric conditioning, uh, good or bad. And I'm really tapping into more of like a, a earthly, more soul centered, um, how can I serve uh, energy field. That feels really good for me. feels really good. It feels a lot lighter than before. Mm, I love that. I wrote, uh, I wrote something a while ago about how I have a PhD 
and I have a p- imposter syndrome also. So I wrote it as like a, a, like a flashing warning sign for people on the internet. Like if you think that you're going to get that piece of paper or that diploma or that job or that number in your bank account and suddenly everything's going to go away, I have some troubling news for you. <laughs> in my experience, it's, it's not how it goes, right? And so, yeah, that imposter syndrome, I think, is a very valid approach to being a beginner at something. I think it gets a lot of negative publicity. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. like I remember getting my driver's license when I was 16, right? I, like, I went there, passed the test, got my license, suddenly I could drive. And I was like, I feel like a complete imposter. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a driver, Right. Like I have my driver's license, but I don't feel like I'm a driver yet. And so like, yeah, I was an imposter. I'd never driven by myself anywhere. Never done a road trip, etc. And the same thing happened when I graduated. I studied marine biology. I remember I got my diploma. It's like, here's your bachelor's degree. And I was like, I'm not a marine biologist. Like, I don't know anything. I feel like the biggest imposter. And it's it's like, well, yeah, you, you are. <laughs> you, you've never written a paper. You've never conducted an experiment. You're, you're not a marine biologist yet. But like you have everything that you need in order to become one, I think is the point. And I feel like the imposter syndrome is a sign of that. It's almost like a, a breadcrumb on the path of where you truly desire to go. It's like, oh, I, wa- I want this, but it feels really awkward and uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, you're doing it right. Like it should feel awkward and uncomfortable. It's like, oh, it feels weird to be confident. It feels weird to use my voice. It feels weird to stand up for myself. It's like, yeah, good. You're doing it exactly right, right? There's nothing wrong with you. Like just keep doing it. Be it until you are it, right? This is the the road to, what did you call it? Thrivality? (laughs) Thrivication? What did you say? We could, we could, thrivation. Thrivality, (laughs) like we could just do it however we want. Uh, I'm curious to ask you this. um, Do you have any daily rituals or habits that you feel like support you, uh, support your mental health, your body, your relationship, just support you uh, in a holistic way? Yeah, for for sure. I'm, I'm a creature of habit for sure. One is sleep. Like, I feel like sleep is a severely underappreciated superpower. So, like, I try to get good sleep. Uh, I, every morning, like, I do stretches. Like, I move my body. I uh, meditate. For me, meditation has been, like, a, a game changer in terms of learning to, like, like, I call it, like, awareness practice or, like, presence practice. For, for me, like meditate or boredom practice. It's like, it helps me to understand what's going on inside of my body. It helps me to realize that my thoughts are just the rantings of a, of a lunatic. Like I have a, an entire insane asylum in my brain. Like my, my body is like an apartment building filled with, filled with crazy tenants. Uh, and also recognizing that that's not me, like that I am different than the thoughts that come through my vortex. And uh, yeah, like I try to eat staples. Like I try to eat good food. I try to eat more vegetables. I try to drink a lot of water. Uh, nature, being out amongst actually <laughs> earth, 
right? Experiencing genuine earth rather than the, the hustle and bustle of the city. And, and I always go back to like more recently, I've been going back to you as like a, an energy thing. Like I hear, I hear a voice sometimes, but I got to free my energy or like I need some good energy. And so I'm trying to practice being more present in my body and using that as a navigation system. Um, but the things I just mentioned are extremely helpful. And then relationships, like uh, I've started as a consequence of recognizing that I'm really good at being a hermit and I'm really good at staying focused and avoiding the world. Like if, if, I, uh, if I think of somebody, like they pop into my head or if I'm like, oh, I wonder how they're doing. Like I try to immediately like grab my phone and just shoot off a, a text message or a voice note. Like, hey, I'm thinking of you. Like, how you doing? Or, hey, you popped in my head. Like, I miss you. And so that for me helps to tenuously at, at least maintain relationships with people that I care about because I find those are just vital, life-affirming treasures. Yeah. What about you? I really believe in simplicity, like to the core. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think when I observe others, I think people make their life so complex and they try to spread themselves so thin. They put their energy in so many different things. They're investing in so many different ideas. And while maybe some people can do that, I don't think most of us are set up that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, I'm very, very simple. I need exercise every day. And the degree of the exercise, just it's more of a listening to my body. Like tonight, I'm going to play basketball. This morning, I went to the gym and I shot the basketball and ran for like 30 minutes. And tomorrow, I'll probably be really sore. So tomorrow, I'll probably just stretch. Just stretch and walk. Walking is exercise too. Mm. Saturday, I'm going to be on a flight. So I'm going to stretch. I'm going to stretch for at least an hour because I know I'm going to be on a flight for two hours. I'm going to be sitting down, making my body tight. So for me, exercise is, is king. Exercise is the most important ritual for me. Uh, do I exercise every day? No, some days it's not possible. Some days my mind is not, it won't allow me to. Some days my body is like, hey, bro, you just need to sit down. So I really try to have a very intuitive connection with exercise. Um, secondly, I love snacks. Love. Capital L-O-V-E. I love snacks. So... I did the whole, you know, I'm not going to snack. No snacks, no cookies. No, no, no. no. It, it, it never works for me. It never works for me. So I figured I was like, okay, well, then there's got to be two other things to do here. So one was choosing snacks that are better for me. So instead of just doing a whole bag of Oreos, let's do, let's just do some apples with some cinnamon and some vanilla and some granola and a little honey. And it's so good. You know, instead of getting the Reese's peanut butter cups that have high fructose corn syrup, that's no bueno. Let's go to Trader Joe's and get the organic. The sunflower seed butter? Yeah, the ones with real sugar, you know, like. So Mm. for me, it was like a mindset shift of getting out of the snacks that have been mass produced and finding the ones that cost more. For sure, they definitely cost more, but they're just better for me. And then another thing is okay, if I'm going to be the snack man, if I'm going to be the cookie monster, I need my fruits. I need my veggies. I need to make sure I'm having a nutrient-dense meal plan daily. So I, I don't mess that up. I never mess that up. It's very important to 
I think my relationship with food at this point is really, really good and really healthy. You know, one of the words I got rid of was cheat meal. That that word, it 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 just creates so much shame. You got to think about it. If you're about to eat fried chicken, and fried chicken is not what you normally eat because you like to eat clean, so you're used to grilling your food or maybe uh, baking your food, which is a, a lot cleaner way to eat it. And you're about to eat some fried chicken. You're literally going to say to yourself, "Oh, I'm about to cheat right now." Well, what is cheating? Cheating has a negative connotation. It actually means to be doing something you're not supposed to be doing. So now you're telling yourself, I'm not supposed to be doing this, and then you do it anyways. So you're self-betraying yourself. Eating the fried chicken is not you self-betraying yourself. It's the language you're using before you eat the food. That's what's causing the, the dysfunction. So I, I was eating fried chicken, and I was like, oh, I'm about to have this cheat meal. And I was like, no, no, this isn't, this isn't cheating. This is great. This is, this is thriving. This is good. Like, like, Enjoy fried chicken, yeah. I, you know, and so when I got rid of that language, like the cheat meal, it just it it just changed my relationship with food, and it brought me the balance that I was craving. It brought me the balance that I was craving. So exercise, um, having a nutrient dense meal plan, and being being completely aware of what I'm eating, um, my my portion sizes as well. And um, last thing I would say is. Paying attention to relationships because I could do the thing where I don't talk to anybody for a whole day and be completely fine with that. As a matter of fact, I could probably do it for like a month. Yeah. But then I could also do the thing where I'm making calls, I'm on podcasts, I'm at parties, I'm at, I'm at hiking with a group of people, like I'm overly extroverted and I'm perfectly fine with that. I consider myself to be an ambivert. Like I can be an introvert, I can be an extrovert. I'm perfectly in the middle. So what I find is my work is kind of introverted, like being an author, like that part of my job is an introverted thing. So I try to make sure the rest of my life has that balance. So I'm, you know, going to dinners with people. I try to do a podcast once or twice a week to always try to connect. Uh, like this morning when I went to the gym, got in a sauna, there was another guy there. When I first went in there, I had my headphones on. I took my headphones off because I just said, hey, we might talk. You never know. You know, prior to, I used to just always keep my headphones on and never engage. But when I felt, I felt a deep loneliness about a year ago. And that was one of the things I told myself. I said, well, you can't be in public places with headphones on. If you're feeling deep loneliness, you got to take your headphones off. Why? Because headphones on mean don't talk to me. Door closed means don't talk to me. Mad face means don't talk to me. So I told myself, hey, I need to be a little more inviting. And then, you know, that was about a year ago. And then I've been really good. So like when I went in the gym today, I just said, okay, let me take my headphones off. Sure enough, me and the guy end up talking for like 25 minutes. We're just in the sauna, sweating, just talking about life. And it was a great conversation. His name was Zach. And, um, you know, I was like, yeah, Zach, all right, see you later, you know? So that felt good just to even yeah. exchange good energy with Zach. It felt so good in that moment. So my top three rituals are uh, going to be exercise, food, and uh, relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. At, at a simplistic level, we're just, our lives are the composite of the stuff that we put into them. It's like, you are what you eat. You are what you think. You are who you hang around with and gives you energy. You are where you are. Uh, and we have a pretty solid locus of control over determining many of those things. And so it sounds like it's about intentionally choosing like what serves you and letting go of what doesn't. Yeah. 
All right, my man. Well, it's been an hour and five minutes. Shall we wrap it up? Should we talk about this thing we're doing? This thing we're doing is it a is it a thrivational thing? It's a it's a thrivetastic, <laughs> thrivolution, <laughs> thrivathon. <laughs> the thrivathon. <laughs> as long as it, as long as it, how do I say this one? As long as it, as long as it helps the thrive on me. And it's <laughs> bro. We're building an entire new thrivalization. Yes, the thrive dictionary. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's tell them. So we, you and me, and our mutual friend Caleb Campbell are hosting a free five day thrive tastic challenge, September first to September fifth, and it's going to have live calls, community on Facebook. We're going to. We've like literally blocked off our calendars to, I'm, I've got all my energy going into this to answer questions, offer support. Same. Like when we're doing a thing and uh, people can go to borntothrive.com, oh, sorry, borntothrivecourse.com. Give us your email, born, sign up. Borntothrivecourse.com. And it's not a two like the number two, it's T-O. Yeah. born to thrive course.com you know i'm excited about it because as just as a coach as um you know we talked about being an introvert as a creator uh, as an author i've had a long craving to create something with others you know who who are aligned but are also different you know i think that's also so important to respect people's differences and so I just think it's beautiful that we've been able pretty much all summer to lay the framework and uh, discussion and, and just bounce ideas off of each other and just grow this thing to where now we're actually ready to present it to people and then yeah. to invite people in. And so it's, it feels good too, because we had to get out of our like introverted, I can do this on my own way. <laughs> and part of the invitation that we're telling people is if you really want to thrive, you need to stop doing everything on your own. Like you got to come in community. You have to collaborate, you know? So I, I just feel this on a on a soul level. That's why I feel so connected to it. That's one of the things that the, one of the transformations that I'm going through is like, nope, we need to be a community. We need to co collaborate, and this makes you give up control, which gives you freedom, you yeah. know. So I'm so excited for everyone to join us at borntothrivecourse.com. Um, just your name, your email. You'll come on in here for five days, and it's gonna be it's gonna be some sauce, man. It's gonna be some sauce. It's gonna be some good energy. A hundred percent, like. Like just even if you don't want to sign, like go to the website. A hundred percent, it's guaranteed to make you smile. Like the the visual at the top of that web page fills me with glee every single time that I see it. I'm just like I'm so stoked on it. It's like that's the that's it's the best. And uh, and yeah, like I'm pumped up, man. I'm fired up. And I think people underestimate how much can change in five days. It's like you could mm. you could change your life in five days. Done seen it so we're doing a thing born to thrive course.com and uh get in there sly thanks so much for uh for being you man i'm stoked to be your friend i'm always uh i'm always pleased to connect and see your face and uh i just have so much respect for for who you are and what you've been through and how you've how you've used it and what you've created it's uh it's admirable it's heroic man Thank you. I, I, I had to pause for a second to to take that in. 
And um, man, thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. Yeah, man. It's great. It's great to work with you. Uh, build something here. We've been talking about it for a while, so <laughs> yeah. it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty cool. It's like yeah. it's happening. Remember, like we just, this started months ago, and and you you like you were all fired up, slytastic, and was like, Jeremy, this is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna build my thing. You're gonna build your thing. Caleb's gonna build his thing. We're gonna we're gonna keep in touch. We're gonna make this happen. Like, how about next week? You're gonna launch it, and I was like, whoa, man. Like, what if, like, can we just do it together? And then you're like, all right, let's call Caleb right now. And you, and you call Caleb, do you remember when he was naked or something? And then we're like, yeah, <laughs> he had just got out the shower. He's like, Hey, what's up guys. And he, he didn't mean to answer the phone and he was just like topless and we're like, bro, we got an idea. We're doing this thing. It's happening. And, and now to like, see it all come to fruition is super exciting. And uh, yeah, stoked to connect, man. We definitely need to ro- we need to get together. We need yeah. to role play, recreate that scene, and we got to put it out. We got to put it out, man. People need to know how this thing was born. <laughs> they need to know the real story of how of how collaborations actually happen behind the scenes. <laughs>